I do want you to turn this morning to Psalm 1. So if you're not already there, uh, take a moment. If you're using this applied Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. It's page 448. And we are going to go into Psalm 1. Now, uh, when I talk to our own kids at home or even kids in kids' church, and if we're talking about any of the Psalms, I always say, what is a Psalm? And, they always, and I try to get them to respond. It is a song. These are the, these are the songs of the people of Israel, um, many of them written by David himself, uh, but there's also other authors in here. And uh, very likely this psalm is a psalm of David. Now before, or as we get into this text here this morning, it was almost 10 years ago that the singer, ironically, another song that I'm going to reference, Pharrell Williams, wrote a hit song for the movie Despicable Me 2. If you don't know the name Despicable Me, it's, just think it's one of those Minion movies, if you've seen those characters on different things. But he wrote a hit song that uh, you might have heard playing around called Happy. And I will not sing that for you because then it will ruin the song for you. Uh, but I did think, should I use that as like my sermon intro? But I didn't know how appropriate that would be. Uh, but I want to read the chorus lyrics, and it's certainly not as catchy as when you hear it played or, or hear him singing it. But here are the lyrics to that chorus. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Everyone wants to be happy. I've never met a person that didn't want to be happy. And this song really does capture how our culture views happiness and how our culture views how happiness is to be achieved. But as with anything in life, we're always asking the question, is this true? Is happiness, as we think about those lyrics, just this subjective thing that comes by doing whatever we want to do? Is, this, is something really true because it makes you happy? Well, Psalm 1 speaks to the issue of happiness. In fact, at the very beginning of the song, the very first words that open up the, the songbook for the Jewish people is, blessed is the man, or happy is the man. And when we, look, when we come to Psalm 1, Psalm 1 sets the tone for the rest of the Psalms. You say, what do do I mean by that? I mean, it's the framework we need to read the rest of the Psalms because immediately what it does is it marks out two paths for us. The path of the the righteous and the path of the wicked. In In the book of the Psalms, there are 36 Psalms. Of the 150 Psalms, there are 36 that mention the righteous. There are 44 Psalms that mention the wicked. And so what you'll notice this morning as we work through Psalm 1, there are two paths, but there are no neutral paths. There are no in-betweens. It's very black and white. Only one of these people is happy and blessed. And this is not based on a subjective feeling. In fact, happiness is closely tied to the righteous. 
And you can't be kind of righteous, and you can't be kind of wicked. Either you are or you aren't. But culturally, and I think even Christian culture today, we tend to have a very poor theology of of the doctrine of man. So poor that we, we create a whole other category of people. It's not just the righteous and the wicked, but it's also some pretty good people in between. But that's not what Psalm 1 reveals to us. This is not what God reveals to us this morning. Now, there's no real need to get creative in a text that is so straightforward in, in, my, uh, in my mind. So my very creative main truth for us to consider is what you see on the board behind me here. The way of the righteous and the wicked are different. This is not groundbreaking, but this is a good reminder for us to consider this morning. And I want to do that by asking the question, how? i got three ways. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, then 3 and 4, then 5 and 6. And then we're going to look at this psalm in light of all of Scripture. So how? How are the ways of the righteous and the way of the wicked? How are these ways different? Number one, there is a different way of thinking. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The contrast in verses 1 and 2 are the wicked sinners and the scoffers of verse 1 and the law of the Lord in verse 2. There are some who embrace the law of the Lord and some who do not in the simplest of terms. But we want to dive a little bit deeper here. And so we're going to take this phrase by phrase and just make some application along along the way. So the, the psalm starts off telling us what a righteous or a blessed person is not doing. They are not, first of all, walking in the counsel of the wicked. Now the wicked are those who are they're guilty of moral wrong. They, they're, they're, if they stand before the judge, they are guilty at some level. But the, the idea of this word is not someone that's standing there maybe with red horns and a pitchfork. Like we're thinking the, 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 the worst of the worst. In fact, they are often good citizens, religious, hard workers, but they are not part of the people of God. That's, that's the idea of this word wicked. And you think, well, this, this, man, this seems kind of extreme because there's good people. This whole middle category that we often create. But consider that the Consider the wicked of Jesus' day. Were they not the most religious? Those that he would oftentimes correct and rebuke, and in fact use very strong language, like you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're spiritually dead on the inside. You are wicked. The wicked have different purposes and plans in this world than the righteous. What is interesting, though, is that the righteous and the wicked have the same desire for happiness. We all have the same desire to be happy and blessed. 
But the plans to achieve that, to attain that, are radically different. And here it says the righteous, the blessed, are not walking in the counsel of the wicked. Now, the issue being addressed here is is not about being what we might think of Christian hermits that have no interaction with those, quote-unquote, outside our camp. Like, we don't have any association with anyone. But what is being addressed is the seeking of the advice or the counsel of the wicked. We're, We're walking, we're looking for advice from those who are not of the people of God. The wicked have a different perspective on life, a different way of thinking, including for things like career choices, parenting, marital advice, politics, financial planning. I mean, we could go on and on, but all of the perspectives, even on those things that we deal with in some very tangible ways in this earth, all of the the perspective on the wicked on those things are going to be tainted They're going to be tainted against the law of the Lord. Christian, you cannot go there. That is not the source of our counsel and advice. And the mind is where the battle starts. And it's here that we open the door to wrong thinking. And it won't just stay in our minds. Because whatever we're putting into our minds and is penetrating our hearts, even Jesus himself says eventually it's coming out. And I see a progression in these phases, sorry, phrases or phases. If you are walking and seeking the counsel of the wicked and listening to their advice all the time, the progression here. And, and num- the number two here, a different way of thinking, is not standing in the way of sinners. Once we start taking that counsel in, it won't be long until we find ourselves standing in the way of sinners. Now, sinners here describe someone who is missing the mark. You might have heard that before to describe sin. But it's somebody that's on the wrong path. They are committed to evil. So there's an escalation from the wicked that are guilty morally, but, but maybe they're, they're kind of good citizens, they're doing the right things, that they seem, seem to be at least not causing problems, whereas the sinful person is someone who is committed to acts of evil. Their lifestyle is patterned after evil ways. And what's the idea of this phrase? You are no longer just passing through with your ears open to the counsel of the wicked, but now you are on the same road, you're on the same journey, you're on the same way, and you are standing. You're standing still. You're soaking it in. This word has the idea of endurance. In other words, you're enduring with them along the way. You are among the sinners and you're deeper into their way of thinking and their way of life. The blessed man is not doing this. He's not becoming comfortable in the sinful patterns of life. He's not lingering on the sinful path because although he himself is a sinner, 
We are all sinners, and we'll, we'll talk, touch on that even more. He is a sinner bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and can no longer remain in that life of sin. And we continue. We have to. We have to continue just for the sake of time. Point number three here, a different way of thinking. He is not sitting in the seat of the scoffers. So further escalation here. The scoffers are those who openly mock the things of God. They are proud. They are haughty. So you, you see the progression here? In, in, in several different ways, we have gone from walking to standing to sitting. We have gone from the wicked to the sinful, that is, their active sinful patterns of life, to the scoffer that you make an open mockery of the things of God. We have gone from taking in counsel to being on the path to sitting in the seat. Both the word sit and seat in this phrase speak of settling down. It's become your dwelling place. It's become your habitation. And I would say in our culture, it appears that more and more, at least professing Christians, have made their home among the scoffers. And they mock God's plan for marriage and for gender and for repentance and have even begun to discredit the Bible itself all under the name of Christianity. This, though, is not the way of the righteous and will not lead to a blessed life. So there's one way of thinking. So there's a different way of thinking for the righteous and the wicked. The wicked are running after these things, are on the same path and taking in this counsel. The righteous are not. And so verse 2 now shifts from what a righteous person isn't doing to what they are doing. What are they doing? Verse number 2 his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Instead of doing this in verse 1, they are, the righteous one is zealous and desirous for the law of the Lord. He takes pleasure in the word of God. Now the law of the Lord here would be referring to the Torah. This is the first five books of the of the Bible, presumably written by Moses. But also generally, I think what's in, in view here are guidelines and instructions of the Lord that are being passed down orally through the prophets and eventually through the rest of the Psalms that would be, would be written down. But I want us to note here, when it says the law of the Lord, and our teens should at least pick up on this, most of your Bibles will have a capital, capital for each of those four letters in the word Lord. And that is the formal name of God, Yahweh. It is the law of Yahweh. This isn't man's law. This isn't national law. This isn't the religious law of some other God. This is Yahweh's law. And so it's very specific on what the delight is for the righteous man. It is the law of the Lord. There is only one true God. There is only one God whose word is worth following and from which we are blessed. 
There is only one word of God that stirs within us a desire for more and which we can delight in. So are we, are we grasping the vividness of this word delight? Think about what it means to delight in something. We all have things that we delight in. It means we enjoy it, we anticipate it, we're thinking about it, it's on our minds, it's on our hearts. What do you delight in this morning? Maybe from the most serious of things to the most trivial of things. I'll give you a very trivial thing that I delight in. I delight in pizza. I do. I enjoy it. When I know we're having it, I anticipate it. I think about how we can make it better. I wonder why people ruin it with ranch dressing. And I don't think I'll ever tire of it. And that's the idea here. You are meditating. You are delight. Sorry, you are delighting in it to the point that you're meditating on it day and night. The things we delight in, we spend time thinking about and meditating on. What's interesting is the, the Hebrew word for meditate here has this idea attached to it: murmuring to yourself. I, I was surprised when I looked up what that word meant to meditate. But it's like, it's like a low mumbling to yourself. It's something you're pondering so deeply that it's even on your lips. You know, a simple test to see what you delight in and maybe you say, I, I don't know what I delight in. Or maybe we just flippantly say, yeah, I delight in the things of the Lord. But I think a simple test for yourself is to think about what is coming out of my mouth. What's on my lips that I'm quick to discuss? Because oftentimes those are the things that we are delighting in and meditating on. The righteous, though, are pondering and they're literally like mumbling to themselves the law of the Lord because they find delight in it from morning to evening. And that just simply means at all times. So you see the difference between the way of thinking with the righteous and the wicked? Now, the way we think naturally leads to the way we experience life. And this is our second point. There is a different experience in life for the righteous and the wicked. Verses 3 and 4, and we'll take each of these verses one by one. Verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So, so get the image of a beautiful tree in your mind that's planted right where you have two flowing streams of water. Like they, they split, and there's this tree planted right in the middle. In fact, one commentator notes that even if one of the streams dry up, there's another stream right there. You're surrounded by this life-giving access to, to the water. The roots have endless access to this. And you are planted by streams of water. So if you, if you take a plant that you buy at the store and you plant it in your garden, you've essentially transplanted it. 
It's not original to your garden. That's the idea of this word here. The tree isn't natural to this area, but has been transplanted to a location that has everything that it needs to flourish, even in the driest of conditions. It's not needing rain to come to water the ground around it. No, it has an endless supply of nutrients. And right when it's supposed to, it yields its fruit. It's not out of season. It's not at the wrong time. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to, and it's producing fruit. Right now, we're in apple season. We haven't gone apple picking yet, but I have a picture of an apple tree on here, and maybe that'll whet your appetite for, um, for apples a bit. But when we, when we think of a tree, we want a tree that's producing few, fruit. And there are few things more disappointing than a tree that looks healthy but doesn't produce fruit. In fact, doesn't Jesus curse the fig tree because it doesn't, doesn't produce? But a tree that doesn't produce anything of value is useless, is worthless. But here, the one who is righteous is producing fruit in season. And you notice what it says here. Its leaf does not wither. It maintains vibrant, healthy leaves at all times, even when there's no fruit on it, because it's demonstrating its strength and its beauty. And all this is possible because of the continual source of spiritual nutrients being provided. He is the product of verse number two. He is becoming like a tree because of his meditating on the word of God and the law of the Lord. You know, too often we want our lives to be like the tree that's producing all this fruit that looks beautiful, that, that's just flourishing in life. And we want to experience life this way, but we're unwilling or we're undesiring to be in the word to meditate on it, to getting to know our God better. But a life of blessing is about being connected to the source of life, to the one true God, and it comes from no other way than being in His Word. So we say, man, what an image we have here, a beautiful fruit-producing, prosperous tree. I, I do, there's just a quick side note. But in this last phrase, in all that he does, he prospers. It's not saying that the tree is protect, protected from experiencing storms or challenging times. What it is saying is that the tree is healthy and strong and flourishing in any situation that comes. It's not just saying, hey, you're just going to have all, all like, good things come your way all the time, but you will be strong and flourishing and ready for any situation that would come. This is the experience of the righteous. Who doesn't want that? That's what happiness looks like. Not so the wicked. That's, that's the literal language of verse number four. The wicked are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked are dry chaff. They, the wicked aren't the tree. 
And the chaff is the worthless part of the crop that the wind just blows away. It's not strong. It has no life. It's not useful. It's completely different than the tree. And it's like, well, that's pretty obvious. But this is the picture that's painted for us visually. And the point here is that there's no life. There's not even a little bit. If the chaff were laying right next to the same two streams that the tree is laying next to, they wouldn't start... It wouldn't start growing. It wouldn't produce leaves. It wouldn't produce fruit. It has no capacity to even take in the water. It is dead in itself spiritually. You ask, then why does it seem like the wicked prosper? Why does it seem like the wicked flourish in this world? And the way I would answer that question is, well, it's, first of all, it's only because of the blessing of God upon the righteous that the wicked prosper. In other words, the wicked experience what I might describe as spillover grace that God is pouring out on the righteous. One day, Jesus even says, you know, for a time, the, the wheat and the weeds grow together. And it will look like both are being blessed. But one day there will be a separation. And that's, that's where Asaph, when he asked the same question in Psalm 73, and he's so frustrated for that first half of the psalm. Why does it seem like the wicked are prospering and, and the righteous are, 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 are struggling? And then in the middle of the psalm, he says these words, Then I understood their end. Then I remembered what the end will be like for them. That one day the wind will drive away the chaff into judgment. And we'll look at that in very shortly in verses 5 and 6. But these two images of the tree and the chaff meet us really in, in the present moment. It's describing the life of the righteous and the life of the wicked and what they experience right now. You see, we're masters at putting on a front. Most of our social media posts give the impression that verse number three is the experience of our life. When in reality, the experience of our life feels a lot more like verse number four. Our lives feel empty, they feel dry. They feel purposeless. And even when things are going well, it doesn't feel prosperous. And if there is any good feeling that comes, it only lasts for just a little bit of a moment. And then we look to ourselves to draw strength from within, only to find that there, there is no strength within. And we very much feel like this chaff that is just blowing around in the wind and we are rooted in nothing, or whatever we feel like we've rooted our lives in is very unstable. The images given to us here are clearly different. A fruitful tree versus dry chaff. I asked you the question this morning, which has been the experience of your life to this point? Which one of these things does your life look like? 
And I ask that question because the experiences of this life matter because it points to our future. And this brings us to our third difference. There is a different ending. A different ending for the righteous and the wicked. Verses 5 and 6, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. See, first of all, he says, the wicked will not stand or endure. They will not stand up in the final judgment. They will fall in judgment. And really, these first couple phrases here in in verse number five tie right back in to verse number one. So it's the one who stands or endures on the path of the sinners will not endure or stand in the judgment. It's the same, same word that's used here. If you're enduring on the path of sinners, you will not endure in the judgment, but you will fall in judgment. They will be driven away and blown into the judgment of God. And then the second phrase here, the one who, the one who sits in the seat, or the word there in verse number one, the assembly of the scornful will not be found in the assembly of the righteous. That's, that's the result If if verse 1 is where you're at, verse 5 is your end result. The clear differences of thinking and experience in in this life will become permanent. And this song really ends on a very somber note by describing the way or the path of the wicked, which leads to What? Perishing. So this idea that all roads lead to heaven, all roads lead to God, not according to this. The way of the wicked, the path of the wicked will perish. It is the road of righteousness that leads to life. And you notice what it says there. It's a road that the Lord knows. He sees it. He watches over it. He's caring for it. It's on this road that that the righteous are kept safe by the faithful oversight of Yahweh himself. We know Psalm 23 probably very well. And what a part of that psalm, he leads me in paths of righteousness. He is watching over that path and he's keeping you safe. Friend, this morning, you are on a path. And that path will only lead to one of two outcomes. And the outcomes that we see right here, life with God or destruction apart from God. I want us to notice here, I said it ends on a very somber note, that the, the entire way of the wicked is destroyed. He doesn't just say the wicked are destroyed, but he says the entire path the entire way, journey, whatever you want to put there, lead this entire path that is leading to death will perish. And it brings to my mind that at the end, when Jesus Christ returns and all of those final things are put in place, what does it say? Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, which is great news for the righteous. Because no longer will there even be a path that leads to death. Because he completely and totally destroys it and defeats it. 
If you are hearing these words today, your end is not written. I, I don't know what path you're on. I don't know your hearts. But there's still time to get on the righteous path, which really leads us to ask the question, how then are we to think of this psalm? At least that's the question that came to my mind. Is this, is this written for us to just simply ask, which path are we going to choose? Or which life do I want to experience? Or which end do I want to have? Every time Israel sang this song, was it so that they would be asking themselves these questions? And, And I definitely think, and as I just encourage you, which path are you on? There's a place to ask ourselves these questions. Where, where do I stand? Where do I sit? What do I delight in? What experience of life do I have? I also think that that a lot of times our answers are going to be the same related to those questions. Who doesn't want to be the tree that's flourishing? Does anybody in here want to be have a life experience like a dry chaff? Who wants to perish? And so I think the more important question to ask is how do I become righteous? If, if righteousness, or I should say, if happiness and blessing is tied to righteousness, how do I become righteous? How, how do I make this the reality of my life? Because the song here is describing what a righteous or a blessed person does or how they think and what their life is and what their future will be. Notice what we don't ask ourselves. How do I become wicked? Because by default, each of us know that's the, camp, that's the camp we start in. We don't have to learn to become wicked. This is who we are. And we don't need to go far into the Psalms to see this. And so I want to broaden here a bit from Psalm 1 and turn briefly to Psalm 14. So probably just a few pages over In your Bible, Psalm 14. David also writing this psalm in verses 1 through 3. And then I I do want to read verse 7 here. Psalm 14 and verse number 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. If there are any who seek after God. And and here's what he sees. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. We're all in line with the wicked. Notice verse 7. The, the, the prayer of Israel. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion or Jerusalem. When the Lord restores the, the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. But notice where they were looking. They were looking to Zion. They were looking to Jerusalem for their salvation. So no, there are none on the path of the righteous. 
which brings into perspective why in Psalm 1 and verse number 3 that the tree had to be transplanted because no one is naturally by that stream unless they have been planted by God. All of us are in need of salvation. And where do we turn for salvation? I want us to turn back, not quite to Psalm 1, but to Psalm 2. And some would link Psalm 1 and 2 very closely together. And I think you'll see why in just a moment. I want to read here for us this entire psalm. Why do the heathens, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see the idea of scoffers even there. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. That's what we just read where Israel was looking for salvation. My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessels. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And here's very similar phrase, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. See the very similar lines of thinking between these two psalms. There's a way that is perishing. And the blessed man as Psalm 1 starts out, Psalm 2 ends telling us how a man is ultimately blessed. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So when we read Psalm 1, the person being described, the, the true blessed man, if I could say it like that, being described in, in Psalm 1 is the king of Psalm 2. He's the man who is blessed. He is the man who is righteous. And when we take refuge of him, in him, what does the end of Psalm 2 say? We are then blessed as well. You see, if you follow the storyline of blessing, starting with the promise of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 3, do you remember part of this blessing to Abraham? From you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is, what, this is what God's driving at in the unfolding of the gospel story in his word. In, 
couple chapters later in Genesis 15, 16, how did this blessing come? How was Abraham, even Abraham himself, made righteous? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The righteousness spoken of in Psalm 1 comes in the same way that Abraham's righteousness came. By faith, he believed God I want us to turn to one other psalm in Psalm 32 and then we'll be about wrapped up. Psalm 32 in verses 1 and 2. Here's this word again used twice in these first two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And how are sins covered? How, how does the Lord not count our own sin against us? It's through the king of Psalm to Jesus Christ himself. It was Jesus, the righteous man, who lived Psalm 1, verses 4 to 6, for us. He was blown away like the dry chaff. He was separated from the assembly of the righteous. He endured the path of the wicked in your place, and he took the punishment of scoffers and sinners so that God could transplant you by streams of water and give you all that you need to flourish in this life and beyond. His righteousness is our righteousness. And so the only way that we can read a psalm like Psalm 1 as something to rejoice in, the only way that we can delight in the law of the Lord, because let's be honest, we read the law of the Lord, who likes being told what to do? Not me. Who likes to be told that happiness is not just doing whatever I want that makes me feel good? And actually, when we read Psalm 1 and we read, don't be walking with the sinners, don't be standing, sorry, walking with the wicked and standing with the sinners and sitting with the scornful, but you should delight in the law of the Lord. And I look at my life and I say, well, I tend to gravitate to this, not to delighting in the law of the Lord. I, I don't know that that's true of my life. And I can't just conjure up like within myself, okay, I just gotta, I gotta delight. Either I delight or I don't delight. I can't force myself to delight in something. And so Psalm 1, unless it's read through the lens of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ being our righteousness, there's, there's not a lot of good news there. But we understand that Jesus was our righteousness and that he lived perfectly, never walking in the way of sinners, never standing with the sinful, never sit, sitting in the seat of the scoffers, but he always faithfully, truly delighted in the law of the Lord for us. And as God the Father prospered, God the Son, so to speak, 
we are part of that blessing as well as we trust in him. And so Christian, this morning, can I encourage you? Rejoice that God has shown favor on you. That he lived perfectly this life and he brings you into an eternal life of blessing so that even when you don't delight and even when you fall into temptation, he keeps you in the way. He watches over that path Otherwise, there is no hope to be blessed. This morning, if happiness and blessing is elusive in your life, the answer is right in front of you. And I want to end with these words from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. He says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, repent, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return by faith to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, and that life of pardon is filled with true happiness. (music) 